especially <clears throat> for leading us in prayer, reading God's Word to us. We are currently in the middle of a series on the Sermon on the Mount. If you're a guest with us, uh, we've been working on the Sermon on the Mount for a number of weeks, and we're just taking as long as it takes to go through the greatest sermon ever preached. And each week, the introduction is essentially the same, just a reminder that the Sermon on the Mount is a way in which Jesus explains what life is like in His kingdom. The world in which we live is made up of two kingdoms according to the scriptures. The one kingdom is the kingdom of the world. That's the kingdom outside of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then there's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, which is inside the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, if you would call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are a member of his kingdom. And that means that, that he is the one whose, whose administration matters to you. His way of living, his, his ethic is the, the ethic and the way of living that you follow. And, and he explains what that looks like in this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things we've been seeing over and over again is that what makes the kingdom of God different and makes Christ's ethic different than the ethics of, of those around him is that Jesus is not just uh, concerned with our behavior. He's not just concerned with whether or not we do the right things, whether or not we say the right things. Jesus is actually very, very concerned with our motives, because as we saw last week, you can have very, very different motives for doing the same thing. Two people can both be very honest people, but be honest people for very different reasons. Here's one person who says, I'm going to be honest, and I'm going to be truthful, and I'm going to have integrity because it's good for business. It's good for me. And here's another person who says, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to be truthful, I'm going to have integrity. Why? Because I love the God of truth. And he is the God of truth. And, and he, because he is the God of truth, rescued me from, from my self-deception and from my deceitfulness. And, and he died in my place so that I could be freed from that, so that I could live in his truth and that I could be a person of truth. See, two very different motives for the same type of behavior. When Jesus, it's interesting, okay, when Jesus is asked to summarize the law, he says, Here's the first part of the summary. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. The second part, he says, is love your neighbor as yourself. If there isn't love behind your behavior, if there isn't the right motivation behind your behavior, you're not keeping the law of Christ. That's what he's telling us. So what does that look like? Well, that's what we're going to start looking at together in the coming weeks as we deal with these different sections that, the, that Jesus uh, lays out for us in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to start right here with the, the first law that Jesus brings up. And it's, and it's a law that most of us would probably say, ha, here's one I got covered. I'm not a murderer. I think I can, I can say I've kept this law quite well. Verse 21, what does it say? You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And you say to yourself, boom, nailed it. As far as I can tell, I have not committed murder, I have not killed anyone, 
Uh, did you know, uh, actually, that murder is quite rare, uh, a crime? Uh, only 0.2% of violent crimes in Canada are actually murder. I thought I'd look that up so I could prove to you that murder is actually a pretty rare thing. So probably the listeners then, as well as today, who look at this law say to themselves, Ha! I can keep this one. And maybe that's why Jesus lays this one out first. Maybe that's why he brings this one up first, because Jesus is going to show us just how comprehensive, just how, how searching, just how devastatingly penetrating the law of God actually is. Because in verse 22, he says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus does this six times in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Now, the reason he does that is because Jesus is addressing not so much um, the Ten Commandments, when he says, you have heard it said, he's, he's addressing the, the interpretation and the application of the law that the, la- the rabbis, the, the scribes and Pharisees, these guys who were trying to figure out how to apply these Old Testament laws, he's saying, he's saying they tell you one thing, but I tell you something else. He's going to show that their application is not deep enough that they've been applying the law, the law in the wrong way. So here's what we're going to do today. We have a, 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 a huge agenda for this morning, and it's this. We're going to unpack Jesus' definition of murder. That's it. We get, we get to two verses, <laughs> verse 21 and verse 22. But it is a huge agenda because what we're going to see is that Jesus' definition of murder is, is, is so much more then meets the eye. So let's look at verse 22. Jesus says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And immediately, we have to say to ourselves, okay, what is going on here? Now, Jesus, when he uses the words uh, subject to judgment, anyone who is angry will be subject to judgment. What he's doing is he's connecting anger to murder. And for us, that's got to be kind of a jarring thing because if you know your Bible, if you're a Bible reader, you'll know that, wait a minute, like doesn't God get angry all the time? Doesn't it say in the Psalms that God is angry at the wicked all day long? Doesn't it say in Romans chapter 1 that the the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of mankind? Doesn't Jesus get mad? Like there's that story of Jesus walking into the temple and he sees the money changers there and he starts going all kung fu on their, their money tables and flips them over and, and yells at them and clears out the temple. Doesn't Jesus get angry? Don't the prophets constantly get angry at the people of Israel? You read the book of Amos and you think this guy must just be a hothead. And now Jesus is saying if you get angry, you've committed murder. What is Jesus getting at here? What's he talking about? Well... First of all, when Jesus uses this word anger, he's not, he's not talking about losing your temper. That's not the word he uses. He's talking about deep-seated resentment. 
He's talking about a settled hatred in your heart toward another person. Here's what he's talking about. He's talking about when you're at a party and he or she walks in and you see them and your eyes roll and you go, oh, I cannot believe they are here. I hate that guy. I hope he does not come up and talk to me. This is the kind of resentment that, that broods over a wrong. That, 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 that grudge that you hold on to, that you won't let go of, but instead, actually, you nurture it. The word that Jesus used here, it's actually, it's actually connected to the idea of swelling up with poison. The picture is you sitting there remembering that slight, that wrong, that, that thing that that person did to you. And it could have been a small thing, it could have been a huge thing, but either way, you're sitting there and you're sipping the cup of resentment and bitterness against them. You're going, oh, I can't believe that guy, I can't believe that girl. And they, you see them at a party and you make sure you're at the other end of the room if they come to church and they're sitting right there, you're back there, or better yet, you're way back there. Because then you can even have an eye on them, you can give them the stink eye, all service long. That's what Jesus is talking about here. You've had a hurt that hurt you years ago, and you remember it, and you avoid these people like the plague, and you certainly don't talk to them. That's, that's what Jesus is describing, but that's not all Jesus is describing, because he goes on. And he says, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Now, when he says answerable to the court, he's talking about the religious court, the Sanhedrin. And this word Raka, it literally means you nothing. Jesus is describing not just the, the bitterness, the maliciousness that you can have against another person the, where, where you, you know, you wouldn't be too disappointed to find out that, you know, they were in a car accident and broke their leg and they're in traction in the hospital. He's actually saying that, that when you're dismissive toward another person, when you have kind of contempt, you have, you have disdain, you have condescension, when you belittle another person, when you, show, when you show indifference, when you say in your heart, or your, in your heart, or in your mind, when you say, you know what, I could care less about that person. They're nothing to me. That's Raka. And the Bible teaches that, that very often that's what our anger is filled with. More on that later, because we have to go to one more. Jesus goes on and he says, and, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. And then again, we have to pause, and if you know your Bible, you go, wait, wait, wait a minute. Doesn't Jesus call people fools? Matthew 23, he's describing, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, you blind fools. So he calls them fools. The Psalms talk about fools a lot. Proverbs, I mean, over and over and over again, don't be a fool, don't be a fool, don't be a fool. The fool says in his heart, the fool does this, the fool's an idiot. What is a fool? Well, actually, right here, the word that Jesus uses is a pretty unique Greek word. I know I'm doing a lot of word stuff this Sunday. I try not to do that, but we got to this time to, to understand the depth of what Jesus is talking about. It's the Greek word moros. Sounds pretty close to something, doesn't it? 
And it's the word you've got in your head right now. That's where we get our word moron from. Jesus is saying if you call somebody a moron, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Now what does he mean by that? Some scholars think that what Jesus means is, is that if you, are, if you judge the eternal salvation of another person, you are in danger of the fires of hell yourself. Because you see this, this, this idea of fool in the Old Testament. A fool is just not someone who's stupid. A fool is essentially an unbeliever. So Psalm 14 famously begins with the fool says in his heart there is no God. So, so what's a fool according to the Bible? It's an unbeliever. It's someone who does not submit to the true God of Scripture. Doesn't, doesn't necessarily believe that he doesn't exist. That's, that's certainly a fool. But it can also be someone who, who says that they believe in him, but don't actually believe in him as demonstrated by their behavior. That's why Jesus, in Matthew 23, he calls the Pharisees blind fools because they think that they're believing in the real God, but they're actually not believing in the real God. And so they're not part of the kingdom of heaven. So, so scholars say here what Jesus is telling us is, is that when you call someone a fool, what you're essentially doing is you're condemning them unjustly. You're playing God in their lives. You're deciding for someone their eternal state. And no human being has a right to do that. Other scholars say, no, actually, it is more like an insult. It is more like calling someone an idiot. Because that is kind of the modern equivalent of the, of the word moron, is to call someone an, an, an idiot. It is, it is meant to be a slur. It's meant to be demeaning. One scholar says that, that in that context, in, in the time in which Jesus lived, uh, these kinds of slurs, calling someone a fool, uh, was a genuine social weapon meant to cause injury. A genuine social weapon meant to cause injury. In other words, here you have the shame and culture uh, context. And in that context, you're trying to label a person. You're trying to ruin their reputation for the community. You're calling them a fool so that others will start to see them as some kind of outsider. You're damaging their reputation. It's slander. You're, you're putting down their character to them and to others. Think about it. When you, when you call someone a moron, when you say to someone, you're an idiot, you're, you're undermining their confidence. You're undercutting their confidence. You're such an idiot. You don't say that unless you want them to believe that or feel that in some way. Either way, whether Jesus is talking about this insult or Jesus is talking about this this tendency to play God and think that you can uh, look into the hearts and find the motives of what's inside another person. Either way, we've got a really bad attitude here. Here's the overall picture. Jesus says that, that when you are malicious toward another person, that's, that's akin to murdering them in your heart. But more than that, he says when you ne neglect people, when you, when you avoid them, when you, when you just... You look through them. They're just so unimportant to you. You don't care about them. When you treat people like they're not there, you're breaking this seventh commandment. Because you see, indifference, Jesus says, is, is, is kind of a kernel. It's like, it's hatred. It's the seed form of, of murder. It's not murder full-blown, but it's the place from which it comes. And so if you hold a grudge, 
against another person, that's akin to murder. If you're dismissive, you're in danger of committing murder. If you run down or slander another person, you're, you're in danger of committing murder. If you treat people as though they are below you, you are in danger of hellfire. If you blow people off and, and not consider them as worthy of your time or energy, if they're just irritating, and so you're always trying to keep away from them because they, they bug you and they annoy you, and so you're, you're constantly giving this vibe of, I don't have time for you. Jesus says, you are, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Now, hell here, of course, is, is a description of a certain garbage pile on the outskirts of, of Jerusalem that was, that, that was where people brought their garbage and it burned day and night. It never stopped burning. And that's where we get this picture of hell as eternal hellfire. Regardless of whether Jesus is pointing to that garbage heap or he's painting the picture of eternal hellfire, you're in danger of judgment. That's the point. Now understand something. Nowhere else on earth will you find an ethic so unbelievably stringent that it actually has the nerve to penetrate the inner workings of your thought life and demand obedience from the inside not just what you do and how what you say to other people but what you think about other people like this is big brother okay this is 1984 if you're not a believer and hearing this, you should think this is whack. How could any ethic actually dare to, to demand allegiance in my thought patterns, not just in my actions and my behaviors? But guess what? This ethic is so unique and so deep because it is rooted in a profound truth that no other worldview shares, and it's this. People are made in the image of God. That's why Jesus goes so deep with anger and raka and fool deep into our hearts because he's saying, listen, you need to treat every person in every encounter you have with them as infinitely precious, as profoundly valuable Murder is essentially failing to see people as they are and granting them the dignity and the respect that they deserve simply because they exist. And hear this, simply because they exist. Not because they're fun. Not because they're useful. Not because they're talented. Not because they're successful. Not because they're beautiful. Simply because they are. When the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, work this out with me. Why do you care about yourself or care for yourself? Why do you take care of yourself? Is it because you're useful? Is it because you're beautiful? Maybe 5% of us are. The rest of us are profoundly average and we know it. Is it because you're successful? Or is it because it's just instinct? Because it's who you are. Because, like, are you listening to me going, what a dumb question. Why do I take care of myself? Well, because i got to take care of myself. Because 
I'm me. It's instinct to care for yourself. A duh. Well, the same, Jesus says, should be true with others. Which means lovelessness is tantamount to murder. Yeah, Jesus got mad. He got angry at people. Of course, he called people fools. He did that. But he always did it out of love. He loved the truth. He loved people. He even loved the perpetrators. When he calls these Pharisees, you fools, he's not doing it derisively as if he's dismissing them. He calls them fools because why? They're blind fools. He's trying to wake them up. He's trying to get them to see. What on earth are you doing? You're failing to recognize the image of God right in front of you. You're treating the image of God as if they're a thing. And they're infinitely valuable. Jesus never called someone a fool and, and did it sort of out of raka. You know, he was, you never see Jesus belittling or sneering or, or dismissing or being indifferent to others. He never forgot that every human being is made in the image of God and therefore is infinitely precious. I can tell you myself, friends, that ain't me. My anger is too often filled with resentment, frankly, or based on pride and ego and personal offenses. I've shared before in this very space, I, I, I've shared before that, that, that I struggled with anger for a long time in my, in my home life with my children because whenever they did something that, that I interpreted as very disrespectful, I would become very angry. And I wouldn't lash out like physically or whatever, but I have a quick tongue when I want to. And it can be pretty sharp. And I would use it. And it wasn't, it wasn't godly anger because I wasn't looking at my kids and saying, you know what, I see in you a tendency to, to misunderstand your relationship to people in authority and, you're, and, and it is important for you to respect your elders and, and to, to love truth and, and to seek to follow God's way. No, I was just ticked off that they ticked me off. It was all about me. Not giving me the thing that I want or feel like I deserve. Sometimes our anger is full of raka, you know, indifference. I've heard it, I don't know how many times, you know, when you're a pastor, you hear, you hear stuff, you hear people say stuff, and you think, you don't have a clue what you're saying. Like, people say, I'm not mad anymore. I just don't care. Look, I tried. I gave him my best shot. I am done with them. I'm done with them. I just don't want anything to do with them. I'm not mad. Sometimes people say, they're dead to me. Without ever realizing, they killed them. See, Jesus shows us that if, if you run down a person, even in your own mind, okay, you might as well be a murderer. I'm just trying to show you today how comprehensive, okay, the scope of Jesus' law is. I want you to feel the depth of his ethic. I want you to feel constrained. I want you to feel cornered. I want you to feel, even if you're sitting here and you're feeling like, this is unfair. This is ridiculous. This is too much to ask for. Fine, feel that. I just want you to feel the weight somehow. Feel the weight. There is nothing like it. 
And even the best ethical systems in the world, they derive themselves from this, whether you know it or not. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, written by the UN, not a well-known Christian body, okay? With all their lofty language about human dignity and equality of humans, where do you think they come from? Where that comes from? Where do they get that idea from? From here. From the image of God. That's the basis for human rights. Whether we want to believe it or not. And at the same time, Jesus tells us that all the resources for murder are in each and, our, each and every one of our hearts. I use the acorn one all the time, right? Here's this little acorn. And in this acorn sits an oak tree. It's right, really quite remarkable. Everything you need for that oak tree is right there in that little acorn. With the right conditions, the right soil, the right fertilizers, the right water and sunlight, it can grow into a massive oak tree. And, and so murder is this massive oak tree. And we say to ourselves, well, I'm not that. Thank God you're not that. But you're the acorn. Each and every one of our hearts is the acorn. See, the difference between us, Jesus is saying, and and someone who has actually committed murder is just quantity. It's not quality. It's not quality. It's just quantity. The funny thing is, as soon as you're willing to admit that, that you can't keep this law, that, that this law has you cornered, that, that this law has you deserving of God's judgment and his wrath. As soon as you admit that, things can finally change. Look, look at Jesus. Never once did he harbor selfish anger, you know? He never treated people with indifference. Jesus spent time with children. He spent time with prostitutes. He spent time with tax collectors. He spent time with Roman soldiers. These were the most despised and dismissed members of society. And Jesus had time for all of them. He cared for and about all of them. And yet, all those things, the anger that is resentment, the dismissiveness of raka, the insult and the smearing of a reputation that comes from calling someone a fool, it all happened to him. Here's the Sanhedrin. They hated him because he claimed to be the son of God. They hated him. And here's Pilate. Pilate looks at Jesus and he dismisses him as just yet another, uh, some kind of revolutionary. There's a long list of them. He can be ignored. And then there's the crowds. While he's hanging on the cross, dying for their sins, Jesus listens to them hurl their insults and mock him and spit on him. And what does Peter say? He who was reviled did not revile in return. Jesus never once hit back. He took it. He just took it and took it and took it and took it. All our anger, all our indifference. You know, when, and he still takes it. Because when you sin, what are you doing? 
You're resenting God. You're saying there's something out there that I want that God has said no to, and you're saying, I resent that, and I'm going to go for it anyway. Or when things go south for you, they go sour for you, they go sideways for you, what do you do? You say, why me? Why do I have to go through this, God? You resent him. He takes it. He's still taking it. Why? Because as we come to see how Jesus was righteous for us, and that we could never, ever, ever be righteous, that we need his righteousness that he gives us by grace, when we do that, then the change begins to happen. Because we see ourselves as, as no better than the person next door, so we don't dismiss them, and, or sorry, we don't, uh, we don't call them fools and, and, and try to uh, keep them down by our attitude. We, we see ourselves and others as made in the image of God, and so we cherish them and we treasure them. We don't see them as, as objects to be used in order to advance our own agenda and accomplish our own goals. No, no, no. We see them as in and of themselves, again, like I said, simply because they are as, as, as vitally and infinitely precious to him who was willing to send his son to spill his own blood and suffer those fires of hell for them but then also for you. I don't know the quote perfectly, but, but C.S. Lewis in, in one of his works, probably this is mere Christianity or the weight of glory. No, it's the weight of glory. He says, you know, you have never met a mere mortal. Every single one of us is either the most grotesque, <laughs> horrible, uh, monster from your worst nightmare or we're going to be the most beautiful, glorious image of perfection that if you saw us that way, you would want to worship us. And God calls us to walk alongside and shepherd our brothers and sisters towards that picture. Let's pray. Father, there is so much that we have yet to learn from these verses. We've probably just scratched the surface, but we've seen, Lord, a picture of our sinfulness in them. We've seen how your, your law, it, it, it hems us in, it corners us. It does not allow any of us escape. It is so comprehensive. And our natural tendency is, to, is to, to lash out against it and say, that's not fair! How can you demand that from us? But the gospel is that Jesus fulfilled that law for us perfectly so that we are not in danger of judgment but rather we are freed. We are freed from the judgment of the law and we are free to pursue fulfilling it ourselves, not to get anything from you, but because we love you and we love the people you love.
image bearers of yours. Smart, not so smart. Beautiful, not so beautiful. Successful, not so much. And everything in between. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh boy, we take, uh, we take questions um, when we have opportunity after the sermon. We take a question or two uh, to apply the message more deeply or clarify things a little bit. And uh, every now and then I think, oh man, this is risky because there's questions there that I can't answer. And I just got one. <laughs> Rats! Uh, the question is, with our legal system based as adversarial, how do Christians approach legal matters? Yeah, see, I heard a couple people going, oh boy, that is a tough one. How do Christians approach legal matters? Hmm. I don't know, man. Um, avoid the legal system. No, I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like, what I mean, I, I don't mean, like, just don't get in trouble. <laughs> That's not what I mean. What I mean is, is, is you know, ah, next week, I'm going to answer it better next week, I promise. But what does Jesus say? Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the office, and you may be thrown in prison. In all honesty, I, I mean it when I say avoid the, the legal system, try to work things out personally and individually with others uh, in a way that is, is mutually satisfying and beneficial. Now, you can't always do that. Like, you can't do that when somebody says, no, I'm taking you to court. Um, but even when that happens, that doesn't have to actually destroy a relationship. Um, I don't know, how, I, I didn't get, the, I didn't get the, the context of this story, but I know of, of two people, they're gone to glory now, so I can talk about them, um, who were suing one another over business stuff. And nevertheless, every Saturday morning, uh, they, were, they were siblings, every Saturday morning they met for breakfast. I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know how they did that. They're Christians. They love the Lord. They had a dispute that they were not able to work out without getting the legal system involved, and so they did. But they refused to allow it to tear apart their relationship. They loved one another, and still every and every, they didn't talk about it at breakfast. But every Saturday, they still had breakfast. I don't know if I'm answering your question. I just think that's an amazing story, and I wanted to share it with you. So. There you go.